So, we're starting public meetings on October 26th. Does that make you excited or depressed? <laughs> In my experience, the unspoken question of the day whenever evangelism comes to an Adventist church is something like this. Is it safe to bring my relatives with me? Will I lose my friends if I bring them to the meetings? Will they feel shamed, blamed, or coerced into something they don't really want to do? I'm not suggesting that evangelism is always scary or unpleasant, but probably all of us have had experiences that we'd rather not do again in the future. So I thought this morning, why don't we take these concerns head on and uh, explain to you what it is we intend to do, how we're going to go about it, what the goals and the purposes of the series are, and give you a little bit of a taste of it this morning so you have some idea of what we're inviting you to get your neighbors and friends and relatives involved in. I would like to, in summary, suggest it will be safe to bring your family and your friends to this meeting, even if they have another faith or no faith at all. And I would argue that you yourself will enjoy these meetings a great deal. Our basic strategy is to go with an idea that we're calling Calamesa University. In other words, uh, we're treating this kind of like a college course. College courses tend to meet at a certain time a week and uh, have a certain scheduled time, and they often go over a considerable period. In fact, uh, these meetings will cover a period of about 18 months. They'll begin October 26, they'll end in May, we'll take the summer off, and then when the new school term comes, we'll do the uh, second half of the course and uh, finish uh, the following May or so. And it'll be always the same time, uh, always on Tuesday. Uh, we'll be charging a fee for materials, but I think when you see the materials, four-color materials with uh, amazing new artwork and so forth, uh, you will feel that you did not overpay for that. The meetings themselves will be free, but there is a charge uh, that covers uh, the materials. Why are we going so long and why is it going to be so scattered? Well, these days people have busy schedules. And it's getting harder and harder for people to fit 20 straight nights or 25 nights out of 30 in a month. Uh, that type of program, it's getting harder and harder uh, for people to fit in. And in fact, in a typical college course, you will meet once a week or once or twice a month over a period of time. Perhaps more important is that secular people, people who are not now associated with the church, they don't tend to make major changes in their lives very quickly. In my experience, uh, to take a secular person in the community, an unchurched person in the community, and bring them into full fellowship with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that takes something like 18 to 24 months as a minimum. Giving people time to get hold of new ideas, time to get their heads around it, get their hearts around it, uh, determine that a life of commitment 
uh, is better than the other options. Full disclosure, my schedule is pretty full over the next two years, and so we're going to do what works. I intend to be here at every one of these meetings. I intend to be an active involvement in it. And working that around a lot of other things, uh, we figured out this once or twice a month probably is the best approach. I don't know that anything quite like this has ever been tried before in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So we're going to pioneer something. I've been sharing this with some folk in Australia who are into the same series, and uh, they're saying, wow, uh, let's stay close on that. We want to know what happens. Give us feedback. Uh, tell us you know, whether this is a strategy we might want to try as well. Will it work? Well, you don't know if you don't try. But I believe that with careful preparation and with all of you praying for these meetings, whether or not you are able to come, we desperately need you to pray for these meetings and uh, to be involved in heart and as far as possible to be involved in person. And I believe if we as a church commit to this and, and to the opportunity of just looking for people who are open, people who are ready for change, ready for something different, I believe that God will do some mighty things in our community through this. But here's the bottom line. Why would you bring a friend, a relative, or a neighbor when you don't know what they're going to get hit with? You don't know whether that'll be embarrassing or safe or fun or what. So I think we owe it to you to give you a taste of what these meetings will be like. And I'd like to start with the opening clip from the opening night Revelation, hope, meaning, and purpose. Why is this couple smiling? Perhaps they found hope, meaning, and purpose in the book of Revelation. Nearly 2,000 years ago, a lonely man on a distant island received a remarkable vision. Some readers have been frightened by his vision, but many more have found in it the hope meaning and purpose they were looking for. And now, here are your hosts, Dr. John Pauline and Dr. Graham Bradford. Hi, I'm John Pauline. And I'm Graham Bradford. And I want to welcome you to Revelation, Hope, Meaning, Purpose. I was just thinking, Graham, uh, where'd you get that funny accent? John, I don't have an accent. You have an accent. That's the first time I ever heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I can understand you. That's the main thing, isn't it? All right. Well, where are you from? I'm from Melbourne in Australia, home of Aussie Rules football. And we are the best in the world, John. Oh, does that mean you're the only ones in the yeah, world that play it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I have to admit it. <laughs> well, I grew up uh, in New York City, which is uh, the opposite end of the world from uh, where Aussie rules football is played. And I never heard of it until I was about 40 years old. And uh, since then, I have moved to Loma Linda University, where I'm dean of the School of Religion. And uh, we have a health science university there where faith is built in to everything that we do in medicine, dentistry, and so forth. So that brings me to today's world, and 
you know, what's the book of Revelation all about and why should anyone care? All right. I think there's a lot of interest today in the book of Revelation and uh, Hollywood takes it up as a theme. I think people are feeling insecure. They're wondering about, will this world really survive? But John, you're an authority. You've written on this. You've written on The Lion King and Hollywood's interest. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's fascinating to me how much uh, the themes of the book of Revelation do come up uh, in the movie industry today. Uh, you mentioned Lion King. Uh, the book of Revelation is actually a lot like that. It's an animal story. And yet it's not really about animals. In fact, it's about a perfect world that gets ruined and then uh, it gets restored through the actions of a son and so forth. And uh, it's sort of an apocalypse. The book mm -hmm. of Revelation is an apocalypse talking about big themes uh, using this as symbols, animals and, uh, and similar things. It's quite amazing. It seems like all through the centuries, Every generation has found hope, meaning, and purpose from this book. Well, some people feel that, it's, that the book itself was actually prophetic, that God placed uh, in a man's mind some sense of what the world would be like today. That's, and that's an amazing reason why, Yeah, that's why amazing people, feat. I think, are interested uh, mm. in the book today. Mm. Mm. Great, yeah. Well, why don't you take us on a little tour? Where, where did it happen? All right. Back in the first century AD, the Roman Empire, we have this little island of Patmos off the coast of what we would call Turkey, Asia Minor. And John was writing this book, this prophetic book, we believe, to these seven churches in the first century. The Roman Empire dominated the whole scene, and John was probably a victim of that Roman Empire. Mm. All right. Well, uh, why don't we take a visit to the island of Patmos uh, where mm -hmm. John was and uh, show everyone uh, what that was like. Well, John, take us on a tour. Okay, let's All do right. it. Let's have a look. Welcome to our tour of the island of Patmos, the place where John wrote the book of Revelation. Behind me, you can see the beautiful harbor of the island. It's very windy up here at the moment, and we've come through some rough seas to get here. But we also know that life can be rough as well. And we believe this series will help to give hope, meaning, and purpose to your life. We're standing here at the entrance to the cave where, according to tradition, Jesus appeared to John, the revelator who passed it on to us. And we've also found out that these three stones here are to represent the Trinity, the Holy Trinity. And right back here we have the altar where it is claimed the very revelation itself took place. We're inside the Monastery of St. John, which sits magnificently on top of the highest point in the island of Patmos. I'm in front of the chapel, which is a very beautiful place, and uh, the entire monastery here has been placed in honor of the revelation that took place on this island. There is abundant ancient evidence that John was here on the island of Patmos as an exile. Uh, imprisoned because of his preaching of the gospel. But frankly, the island of Patmos looks like anything but a prison. You have the beautiful blue waters. You have the different shade of blue in the sky. You have the brown and the green of the hills. You often have the white, the bright white of the whitewashed houses that are done in that way to keep the summer's heat out of the interior. Uh, the island of Patmos is a magnificent, almost a magical place. Perhaps no more glorious place uh, would be appropriate for this revelation of Jesus Christ and of the heavenly world. Well, 
I think you can already see that this series is going to be a little different uh, than what you've heard before. You noticed, for example, that you have two people involved. Uh, one of them, uh, Graham Bradford, is a professional evangelist. The other one, myself, is a professional Bible scholar. And I honestly think, I don't think anybody's ever tried this before. I mean, you have an evangelist and a Bible scholar bantering over the text of the Bible. Uh, that's a formula for disaster, really. And I'll have to be honest with you, I don't think there's any other evangelist in the Adventist church that I could have done this program with. Uh, I remember on one occasion uh, in our kitchen uh, here in uh, Beaumont, uh, I think we had a knockdown, drag out battle of almost two hours over one particular point in the text. So you have to understand, uh, evangelists are really excited about whatever works. And Bible scholars get excited about what's true. And Ideally, both of those are the same thing, <laughs> but not always. And there are some times when you're weighing and struggling, uh, you know, which side of that are we going to go this time? And we would battle it out and, and, and come to a, a place where we thought we can both live with that. And uh, it was an amazing experience, very exciting experience, and I'm thrilled that we did it. And I think it's a lot stronger for having two minds involved. After all, I'm not a professional evangelist. I don't know how you would take materials and order them and uh, could not have done it without him and uh, appreciate that very much. Now, uh, he's not going to be at these meetings here. He still lives in Australia. But hopefully sometime in the course of those 18 months, uh, you know, we can find a way for him to just sneak in sometime when, when the audience least expects it. I think that would be a lot of fun. But anyway, let me share with you how these meetings are different from what you may have experienced before. First of all, uh, these meetings will be more exegetical than anything you've experienced before. In other words, we plan to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, following the strategy, the logic of the book. Uh, frankly, Revelation seminars often are an excuse for bouncing back and forth around the Bible to whatever text seems to make the point that we want it to make. And I find a lot of people feel a little bit uncomfortable with that. Some may even feel betrayed. At least people have told me they felt betrayed that, that this isn't really what I signed up for. And I want you to know right up front, we're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book, and we're not going to make a doctrinal point unless it arises from the text. That is our commitment. In other words, the text itself will drive the direction that we go. If the doctrine isn't in the text, we're not going to find some way to, uh, to wedge it in. That's my commitment to you. In other words, those who come planning to learn the book of Revelation will be able to follow uh, line by line as we go through. There will be times... When we will go to the Old Testament, for example, or we will go to the Gospels, uh, etc., these moments will be driven by the text itself. In other words, uh, for example, in the book of Revelation chapter 11, uh, you have the talk about someone who can turn water into blood, and uh, there's talk about someone else that can make it stop raining for three and a half years. Uh, sounds like Death Valley. And who are those guys? 
Clearly, they're echoes of Moses and Elijah. So as you're coming to that text, the text compels you to tell the stories of Moses and Elijah. And so the book of Revelation will give us windows into the other 65 books of the Bible that we can follow naturally from the text. So our commitment is to stick with the text and wherever the text leads us. And I think anybody that's interested in understanding the Bible, particularly the tough parts of the Bible, uh, will be able to follow and uh, enjoy uh, the, the program for that reason. Second, we are committed to it being a Christ-centered program. The book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you haven't learned more about Jesus from studying Revelation, you haven't really understood the book. Now that's scary because a lot of us say, well, Revelation takes us everywhere but Jesus, it seems. That's not going to be the case this time. This seminar is not so much about communicating information as it is connecting with the person that the book of Revelation is about. In other words, our mission in these meetings is to help people not just get information, but to actually learn to trust someone that can put meaning, hope, and purpose into their lives. Related to that, it is our commitment to be gospel-oriented. The book of Revelation is about the life, the death, and the heavenly reign of Jesus. And that's what the gospel is all about. So our commitment is to be gospel-oriented. And then fourth, our commitment is to be practical, everyday, living-oriented. Now that may come as a shock. Because whenever you've heard Revelation in the past, it's always about beasts and obscure events in history and, and, and scary stuff. To actually find in there practical lessons for everyday living, uh, that comes as a surprise to many people. We're going to talk about uh, boundaries. We're going to talk about recovery. We're going to talk about abuse issues and things like that. And above all else... We want to make it a safe place for people to learn and to ask questions. And uh, we introduce a third person into the series to help us with some of these practical everyday issues, an expert of a different kind uh, to the evangelist and the Bible scholar. But fifth, and probably most important, is that this series deliberately will take a more positive stance toward other faiths or to people who don't believe at all. I think one of the reasons that people are scared about evangelistic meetings is that sometimes the Bible calls you to criticize what people have done in history or uh, what people believe. And it is easy at times like that to become harsh and judgmental. And I want you to know that yes, we will go to places like that, but we will go there with an intent to learn rather than an intent to judge and to accuse. Let me give you examples. There are in particular three entities in the book of Revelation that come in for serious criticism. One of these is the Jews. Uh, evidently, uh, when the book of Revelation was written, there were some serious tensions between Jews and Christians. We'll hear a little bit more about that in a minute. Uh, and so Jews sometimes come in for some uh, strong 
a treatment in the book. The Romans and the Roman government also was a major challenge for early believers uh, in their struggle for faith. And so the Romans uh, come into some challenge here. And then, as the book of Revelation projects to the future, it identifies that in the Middle Ages of Earth's history, there was a Christian power that persecuted people, a Christian power that in many ways undermined the gospel. This is no news in today's world. The Pope of Rome himself has apologized to the world for many of these actions. So this is not news. We're going to be covering serious history. But here is the crucial point. Why are such things in the book of Revelation? Is it so that we can be unkind to Jews today? So that we will be prejudiced toward Italians whose forefathers were so brutal at times toward the people of God? Are we supposed to be prejudiced against Roman Catholics who are sincerely following God the best that they know how? That's not the purpose this was given. The purpose these messages are in the book of Revelation is as models of what not to do. If we don't learn from history, what's going to happen? We end up repeating the same mistakes ourselves. So you have to, in a study like this, say some things about powers and entities that have ruled in the course of this earth's history. But you can do it without an attitude of superiority and judgmentalism, and that's what we're committed to do here. Let me, let me bring this closer to home. Right now, where we sit, we're pretty much on top of the San Andreas Fault. All right? So there's two big plates of the earth that are separated by this earthquake fault. Every person on this earth, I think, knows that there's good in this world and that there's evil in this world. Would you agree with that? Everybody knows there's good and there's evil in the world. But where's the fault line between good and evil, between the plate of good and the plate of evil? I think one of the problems we get into is we tend to draw that fault line between us and them. You follow me? Between my church and your church. Between my ethnic group and your ethnic group. Between my country and your country. We tend to see the line between good and evil between us and them. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? What does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that the fault line between good and evil runs right through the middle of my heart and your heart. Is that true? And if that is true, then every person in this room has something good that they can share with others. And every person in this room, including the one speaking, has issues that others can help them with. That's a different point of stance than maybe sometimes we have taken in the past. And I am firmly committed in this, this series, we will speak about other people as if they are in the room. We will speak about others knowing that we ourselves are fallen as well. And I believe, you see, that the most important thing in a, in a course like this, a series of meetings like this, is that people understand that the room is a safe place to learn and to grow. 
And if people realize that the one who is speaking is learning and growing with them, then it becomes a safe place to learn and grow. Unless we can be humble and vulnerable ourselves. And trust me, there was a day when the confidence of the evangelist pulled people into new beliefs. Today is not that day. Today, if you have all the answers, how do people respond? If you think you have all the answers, we know that we have nothing to learn from you. In today's world, particularly for the younger generation, the under 40 generation, the greater the confidence that you have in your opinion, the more unsure they are that you have anything to teach them. And so it is in a spirit of humility and vulnerability that meetings like this can touch people's hearts in a stronger way. You say, how can you say that? You got a PhD in the New Testament. You did your dissertation on the book of Revelation. How can you say that you're going to learn from a crowd of people that come off the street? Let me tell you what a scholar is. A scholar is like a farmer who digs a post hole in a field. You know an awful lot about the contents of that post hole, right? I mean, you've been down in there, down and dirty in there. You know a lot about what's in there. But what have you learned when you've done that post hole? You've learned how deep the field goes. When all you knew was the surface of the field, you could content yourself. I, I know all about this. But once you've dug a post hole into that field, you realize, wow, the whole field goes that deep. A scholar is not somebody who knows many things. A scholar is somebody who knows how little he or she knows. That's what scholarship is all about. That's what meetings like this are all about. And so, let's go back to the screen. And we're going to learn a little bit about persecution in the ancient world. And then we're going to ask, how can that become practical and help our lives in today's world. Welcome back. Uh, would you like to see how people in John's day used to live? Uh, we have some neat shots of some of the homes in ancient Ephesus. Let's have a look. Okay. I'm standing in the terrace houses of ancient Ephesus. Uh, these are largely constructed one or two hundred years before the time when the book of Revelation was written and would have been a major feature of this part of the city at that time. In the ancient Roman world, there were two main types of houses for the wealthy. One type was called the domus and the other was the insula. The domus would be like a private home with a big central courtyard. The insula was sort of like an ancient condominium. Uh, where a number of families uh, would all construct their houses in an apartment complex. And uh, this is one of those. This is an insula-type apartment. Now, let's imagine that we have uh, a Christian. Let's call him Jason. And he's a Christian Jew. And he's living here uh, in one of these apartments uh, in Ephesus. How would persecution be faced by such a Christian? What would the dynamic be? When you look at the historical records, and even the record in the book of Revelation, there's not a lot of evidence 
that Christians were systematically persecuted at this time. Acts of persecution occurred, but there was no empire-wide systemic uh, sense of persecution at the time. Uh, the reality is that most persecution would have occurred at a local level, perhaps something like this. Let's say Jason is living down here, and on one side uh, is a Jewish neighbor, on the other side is a pagan neighbor. Christians often were sheltered in the fact that Romans saw them as Jews, part of the Jewish faith. And Jews had freedom to practice their religion without worshiping the emperor or doing the civic holidays and so forth. But let's say this neighbor here doesn't get along so well with the neighbors on each side. And maybe his goats get out of the pen now and then and eat up the petunias uh, in front of the neighbor's house. And, and finally, this Jewish neighbor just has had enough. And he says, I'm going to go to the authorities and let them know he's no Jew. You see? And then... When this Christian's brought in, when Jason is brought in and is challenged in these things, then they say to him, well, if you're not a Jew, what are you? That means you need to worship the emperor. And uh, let's find out if you're actually a true believer in Rome. And so local persecution means that it has more to do with how Christians get along with their neighbors than any governmental attempt uh, to stop Christianity. And so for a Christian... Whether or not to participate in the festivities of his neighbors is a serious issue because if you are seen as antisocial, if you don't get along, a neighbor could very easily have you turned in and you'd face imprisonment or even death. Boy, there was a lot of pressure on people of faith back then. How do, how do you suppose they well, coped with that? Well, people can cope if they know that God is in control and he's caring for them, and he's promised to put his arms of love around to protect them. Of course you can Wait, cope God, if you know that God... What? What do you mean God is always in control? He's always caring and always love. What about all the children? John, what, go what's going on? Uh, uh, <laughs> this is, this is your wife? Pamela. <laughs> <laughs> She's my wife, and uh, we've sorry, been together we about her. 35 uh, years. And uh, one thing I've always appreciated about Pamela is that she asks the questions that scholars didn't hear the answers to when they were in school. I'm sorry if I upset her. I mean, you know, I mean, God is around, and he does promise to care for us and protect us and look after us. And but I want to know, what about all the children who go to sleep at night because they don't have enough to eat, because they've been abused? I know a little bit about that, going to sleep at night because there is physical and emotional abuse. What about the women who've been raped and... Uh, been abused and and what about well, all those women and the children? Tough questions there. You're asking Do you have some tough questions. I think, I think Graham. I think the key here is this: when you say that God is in control, uh, it then raises the question: Well, where was He? Yeah. When when right. things happen okay. to people, well, where was He? I think the key here is the issue of trust. Yeah. But, you see, if you trust God, and if you know He's in control, the combination of those two. I think is what gives people I can confidence. only plead to Pamela, yeah. hear us through, because the next session we're going to show that God is not way out there. He's right here. And then the session after, we're going to see the big picture. So just hear us through, won't you? Okay. All right. And uh, we hope that was a fun way to welcome Pamela <laughs> into our program. Be interesting to see how she handles us in the, our material. Let's go to break.
Welcome back. Uh, we've moved over to the interview part of our set. Uh, chairs are a little bit more comfortable, and I, I think uh, Graham kind of needed that because I, I think he's just a little bit shaken still from uh, what just occurred. And uh, I'd like to reflect a little bit uh, with you, Pamela, because we were talking about persecution, what it was like for the ancient Christians. And by the way, people should know, uh, you and I have had conversations like this uh, through the years, and scholars often can be off in their own world, but I appreciate the common touch that uh, you're going to be bringing to our I programs, yeah. uh, I think, tremendously. Yeah. And it seems to me that when somebody is living in the ancient Roman world, he's a neighbor in that world, uh, the big issue is how you deal with your neighbors, how you deal with the social life. And uh, I think a crucial aspect of that is rejection. Uh, people, when they feel like they're different, uh, they can often feel rejection and so on. And, and, and Christians, as they were dealing with that rejection, uh, had to find ways uh, to cope with it. Was there ever a time in your experience when you really feel, uh, felt rejection? Yeah, I think uh, there definitely was. And uh, as I recall, through the years, uh, rejection is what I really felt. It was uh, when my parents divorced. I was only 12 years old at the time. Um, there's five children in my family. And I re remember the day like it was yesterday uh, when my parents divorced. And um, the day that that divorce was final, um, I remember my parents came home from the lawyer. And uh, my mom came home into the house. My dad stayed away, but my mom came home with um, she came into the house with the suitcases and boxes, and her job then was to pack everything up that she owned and uh, leave. And so the five of us kids watched. And um, my, my youngest brother was two years old, and then the rest of us were like eight, nine, uh, 12, and 13. And... Uh, so she brought her suitcases and boxes, like I said, into the house, and she packed her clothes from her room and then boxes uh, and packed. I remember she went into the kitchen and took the Tupperware. She had been a Tupperware dealer, so she had lots of that and packed that in boxes and then just took enough of whatever she needed from the kitchen, uh, silverware and plates and pots and pans. I remember you saying she was even dividing up the family pictures. Yeah, you know, she pulled out the picture drawer. How and, did you feel at that moment? Well, you know, it was quite a devastating thing, you know. There were the family pictures and she had to decide, well, half of them would stay and half of them she would, she would take with her and... You know, my oldest sister or I were holding the baby and while well, he was sucking on this pacifier and in diapers. And, you know, here we were, had to watch this scene before us and as she's packing things and away. And as you were watching, did you somehow feel responsible for this? Well, I think children often, often think, well, what could I have done differently? Maybe if I would have been a better child, then maybe the parents would have stayed together. Maybe I had something to do with my parents um, divorcing. Mm -hmm. I think often people, uh, children, do take responsibility for these things. It's as if, if I had been a better child, uh, maybe this wouldn't have happened mm -hmm. and so forth. And I, I know from experience that in many ways this has marked Pamela's life. 
And, and uh, even to this day at times, uh, she can tear up in, in telling this story. You're probably wondering, what does this have to do with the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation speaks to people who have felt rejection, people who have suffered. Uh, let me share with you Revelation chapter 1 and parts of verses 5 and 6. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. You know, I recognize that sometimes God can seem distant at times like this, difficult. But when you come to understand over time, and over the next couple of sessions, uh, uh, we're going to try to do that, to come to discover that God really cares deeply, to come to discover that God hurts with us when we hurt, and he has made us kings and priests. That means to the rejected ones, they feel cast down. They feel like they're not worth anything. And to them, God says, I'm raising you up to the highest imaginable status in this world. And as we come, begin to think in those terms, we can begin to deal with the rejection that I think all of us have experienced uh, in one way or another. Graham? I agree, John. And I've been really moved by Pamela and what she has said. And I'm sure there are many who've been watching this program who, who feel and identify with Pamela. It was a moving experience. And there are others out there who've gone through similar experiences, not exactly the same, but some may have felt rejected. Uh, some have been abandoned by their parents and some are out there, as Pamela has said, are hungry. Some out there are very, very lonely. And we want to encourage you that this book of Revelation does give you hope and meaning and purpose. You find your, your identity by understanding that God is there. He is in control of your life and of history. And we want to make this very clear throughout this whole series. And we want to thank you also for watching Hope Channel and watching this program of Revelation, Hope, Meaning and Purpose. Our very next session coming up is going to deal with how God has been involved in our lives, in our history. Right from chapter 1, we go to see He has not been way out there as a bystander watching. He's come down here in a very meaningful way to build hope, meaning and purpose in your life and my life. Thank you once again for watching and we'll look forward to being with you again in the very next program. In the past, a main way that we would advertise meetings like this is a mass mailing. We send it to every home and uh, anywhere close. Reality is that doesn't work very much anymore. In today's world, the best advertising is word of mouth. Whether it happens face-to-face -face or on Facebook, <laughs> word of mouth is the best way to advertise. And the best way to bring somebody from the community to these meetings is if you go to them, not and say, hey, I heard about these meetings, they would be good for you. No, but rather say, have you heard about these meetings? I'm excited, I wanna go, would you go with me? You see, that would be the best type of advertisement. And so there is one of these in your bulletin uh, there's a bunch more out there that you can pick up on the way out. If you think of neighbors, friends, uh, people you work with, etc., we would encourage you to get directly involved uh, in these meetings. I'm taking a bunch myself, as you can see, 
is I know some people, I think, that would enjoy this. So God bless you as we consider this journey together. I invite you to participate in any way that God would lead. God be with you. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you, be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.